opportunity to come before you to study your word, this opportunity to fellowship, and this opportunity to learn from one another and increase our faith, Lord. We just pray that you continue to help us grow, you continue to bless this congregation, and you just continue to help us have a good night and a good week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how's everyone doing this week? Yeah, good. We're only halfway done, so there's still plenty of time to mess it all up, right? So if you don't know me, I am Brian the intern. I get applause now. All right, I like it. I'm growing on you. But anyways, we are in the book of Numbers. We're starting in uh, Numbers 26. And uh, as we open up to Numbers 26, this is the map of where the Israelites are at. The red star is where they're at. The green star is where they're going to go. Unfortunately, you have basically the rest of this book and another entire book before they get there. And so <laughs> for, the, for the next, I don't know, maybe, maybe by October we'll be able to say, hey, Joshua's taking them in. But as of right now, they're still sitting in the uh, plains of Moab and they're actually coming off some pretty bad news. So starting in verse 1, we will get into the census and then I'll give you guys some context because uh, I think these first couple verses are important. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's houses, all in Israel who are able to go to war. And Moses and Eleazar, the priest, spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, take a census of the people from 20 years old and upward as the Lord commanded Moses the people of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt were, and we'll get into a bunch of names in a second. I hope, I hope you guys are excited because we're going to read every single one of them, and we might even do it together. But no, so the context in the background, I want you to kind of really understand what's really happening here and what's going on here. I don't know. I don't know if I'm getting ready to get beamed up or what. That was crazy. You guys, did you guys hear that too? That's pretty awesome. We need to keep that effect on my voice. Or at least some, like, remember the old Obama reverb as he spoke? It would, like, echo off the walls so that I could get that uh, author authoritative voice. But anyways, back to the book of Numbers, why we're here. So we see this second census, and we're in chapter 26. And it mirrors almost exactly the census that we see in chapter 1. The reason why is an important reason why the book of Numbers is written. And you need to see it kind of as a whole to watch it play out. And even go back to Exodus and watch it kind of start from there. So in Exodus, at the end of Exodus, we have, we have, uh, what's his name? Old Moses. That's right. That guy. He was up on Mount Sinai and he was getting the tablets of the law, right? Down below, Aaron was leading the people in the worship of the golden calf. So even before we get into numbers in that first census, we see the priest leading the people in disobedience. We go into that first census and we have a hope of jumping in and basically receiving that inheritance that God has meant for him and promised him all the way back from Abraham. We kind of talked about that when we talked about Balaam and all this other stuff, right? And so these people are hopeful, they're waiting, they're ready to get up there and they're ready to 
sees the inheritance until we get to about chapter 13 or 14. All of a sudden, they run into the spies come back with the reports. And so you've got Caleb and Joshua who are faithful spies. The rest of the spies are like, nah, them people are too big. And so at that point, God pronounces, you're going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. Till you die, we'll give it to the next generation. And then after that, the hope is kind of crushed, and you just have three basic cycles of rebellion. Starting with, uh, we're not even starting, but just going through them questioning God on, them, on their food, them questioning God on the promise, them questioning Moses and turning and betraying Moses. And then finally, in Numbers 25, we have the final kind of rebellion of them basically just going and worshiping and serving Baal. And as a result, a plague happens, and that wipes out the rest of the old generation. The rest of the old generation is gone at that point, and you have the new generation. Now, remember, we started in Exodus kind of 32, Aaron, the priest, leading that old generation in disobedience. We have a similar story with Phineas, what we covered last week. Phineas, the priest, is now leading the nation in obedience. Where Aaron led them into idolatry, Phineas actually sheds blood to turn away God's wrath and to provide atonement for the people. So now we have a new start. A new start with the new generation, new people, new census to get ready to go in and take the promised land. Does that make sense to everyone? So that's basically the ebbs and flows of the book of Numbers as we're moving forward here. But unfortunately, before we get into all the exciting stuff of them going into the promised land, we got to get through a bunch of names. And so I figured I could get through all of these names with you, but what I want to do tonight is really just kind of hit the tribes, see the numbers that are going on here, because I believe that tells us a little bit of a story too, and then discuss what that means moving forward. So starting with verse 5, we have Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, and the Reubenites were listed as 43,730 fighting men ready to go to war. Now, if we go back to chapter 1, it is actually 2,770 people less than that first census. So Reuben took a little hit over the last 40 years, okay? And then it kind of goes on below on maybe why they took a little hit, because we see in verse, starting in verse 9, the sons of Eliab, Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram. These are the Dathan and Abiram chosen from the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when the company died, when the fire devoured 250 men and they became a warning. And then verse 11 is a very kind of, I like this verse a lot because it's but the sons of Korah did not die. So even though this family and this group and this tribe were in rebellion, God still preserved a remnant to keep that promise. There was not going to be, if you look at this and you compare it to that first group of numbers here, you're not going to find any of those tribes that are missing going forward into the promised land. Every name that was in that first group of numbers in chapter 1 is going to be listed here in Numbers uh, chapter 26. The difference is, it's just a younger group now. And so moving on to Simeon, 
the sons of Simeon according to their clans. And let's see. These are the clans of the Simeonites, 22,200. The difference between that number and the chapter 1 number is about 37,000 people, 37,100. So you have over half the tribe being wiped out in that 40-year period. Now, if we turn back to chapter 5, we can kind of get a hint as, as to why that was happening. Um, remember, the guy who got a spear through his gut taking the woman into the tent by Phineas, that was a Simeonite. And so maybe this tribe had a little bit more participation in the thing that led to the plague than the other. Because remember, only about 24,000 people died in that plague, so we can't say all of them were Simeonites, because we know that's not true. But, and if we go back through the desert and we look at the other plagues that took place, we can see how maybe the Simeonites had some issues that they needed to work out moving ahead here. Um, and then we go into the sons of Gad. Let me make sure I'm in the right spot. Yep, verse 15, the sons of Gad. And where's my numbers here? These are the clans of the sons of Gad. They're listed 40,500. They're missing about 5,000 people. They're about 5,000 short from the, uh, from the original, what am I looking for, census. I get confused on that word because I don't know, like, I want to say like censuses, censes, censes, I, but it, so I always, my brain catches me and it's just like, hey, Brian, just stick with census. Try to figure out a way to make it singular. Um, synthesize, synthesizer. But these are the clans that the sons of Gad, as they were listed, 40,500, they're 5,000 short. Then the sons of Judah, here's an interesting part in this, where Ur and Onan, Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. Canaan, Canaan. If you guys remember that story, that's out of Genesis. And so for some reason, the author of Numbers here is calling back the reader to disobedience that existed long before any of the, even before they were in Egypt. And so I think we're kind of seeing through the disobedience of Simeon in the previous chapter and calling back to Genesis, we can see how God's provision and God's promise and Korah too, we've already hit Korah and mentioned him. All these guys have been mentioned in this, in this census here because I believe God wants to tell them and show them that their disobedience really has no bearing on the fulfillment of the promise. Now, it may have a bearing on, obviously, we've seen on who gets to take part in the promise, but God is always going to keep his promise, and it ain't going to be any of us or any of the Israelites that end up getting in the way of that promise being fulfilled and that promise being kept. So let's move on to, did we even hit Judah? No, we didn't. Judah's a pretty big tribe, 76,500. They went up by 1,900 people. Moving uh, forward, we got the sons of Issachar. And they're another big tribe, 64,300. They went up by almost 10,000 people, 9,900. Um, the sons of Zebulun, they are 60,500. They went up by 3,100. Now we're getting into the sons of Joseph. This is where you get like the only difference between the original, 
the original census and this census, the, uh, the order in which Joseph's, Joseph, Joseph's, the sons of Joseph, there we go, we'll use the, the dative or whatever, but the, the order in which the sons of Joseph are listed are reversed. And so if you go back to that first chapter, you will see, let's see, who we got first? We got Manasseh. In the other chapter, Ephraim was listed first. But the sons of Manasseh kind of give us a little story that we're going to run into in the very next chapter here. If we go to verse 33, we'll see, Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, had no sons but daughters, and the names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milkla, Terza. Do not name your kids. I know biblical names are a, a, a big thing right now. Especially, don't, don't name your daughter Hagla, please. <laughs> These are the clans of Manasseh that were listed. 52,700. Now this clan, this group, grew by over 20,000 people. So now we, we went through a list of some clans that took some heavy hits. Now we have a clan that's actually taken a very big jump here. And I think, if I remember right, moving forward, we'll see that Manasseh was the one that increased the most over the amount of time. Now, the sons of Ephraim, according to their clans, 32,500, they lost about 8,000 people. So they were sitting about 40,000 when they went in to the book of Numbers and went into the wilderness. Now that they're getting ready to move out of the wilderness, they're down by about 8,000 people. Um, next, we hit Benjamin, Benjamin, and these are the sons of Benjamin. They are listed at 45,600. He went up by 10,200. And so the sons, the uh, tribe of Benjamin grew pretty big too. Next, we got the clans of Dan. They were at 64,400. They grew by 1,700. So they, they stayed fairly well consistent. These are the clans of the sons of Asher. They are at 53,400. They went up by almost 12,000, 11,900. The sons of Naphtali were, are now at 45,400. They went down by 8,000. And here's the amazing thing going into verse 51. I want you guys to kind of see this because it's, it's crazy. I had to even check the math myself because I've seen it in the commentaries and I was like, can't be true, can't be true. This is the list of the people of Israel, 601,730 people. Now, that's already a giant army. Because remember, this is the fighting people. That's a, if we remember back in, what was it, in the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, Iraq had the uh, fourth largest army in the world at that time. And I think they were boasting an army of about 400,000 people, if I remember those numbers correctly. I was going to look up like how big the U.S. military was, but I was like, oh, that sounds boring. So... It's bigger than that. So, but 600,000 people is a lot of people ready to fight. But then also, we're not even at the total population. If the 600,000 were the fighting men, we're probably looking on the low side, 2 million, on the high side, close to 3 million. So you can understand why the king of Moab was looking down at the mountain and was like, oh my gosh, this is a horde of locusts coming through here. You know, it was a giant group of people moving through there. Now, you will get some people that will argue with those numbers and say that at that time, because we're talking about the Bronze Age here, if you want to go back in your history and on your timeline and all that, that that group of people was not 
feasible around considering like the world's population and all that. But if you like look at China at that time frame and all that, China had 72 million people. The area that Israel was in had a couple more million people. So we're not even talking 1% of the Earth's population at this point. So it ain't like this is like some crazy number. And if we remember going back to Egypt, why they were held in slavery anyways, because the Egyptians looked at them and said, these people outnumber us. If we don't do something to fix this, we're going to be in trouble. From the very beginning, this was seen as a very populous and healthily breeding people. I don't know. <laughs> Use your imagination. But that being said, so the total list of people is 601,730. That is only a loss of 1,820 people. So that's a less than 1% difference from the original number that went in to the wilderness is now coming out into Israel. That's a huge testament to God fulfilling his promise to this group of people. Because again, every tribe, every leader, every chief name that was going into the land will be going and taking up an inheritance and taking up a residence inside of Israel. And so that inheritance is going to be fulfilled, that promise that was issued all the way back to Abraham, and then issued again as Balaam gave it to the Moabites, and then issued again as we moved through and kind of saw the plague. Never at one point has there been any doubt that this group of people are going to move into the promised land and obtain the promises of God. And so, that being said, starting in verse 52, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, among these, the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe, you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe, you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. But the land shall be divided by lot according to the names of the tribes of their fathers they shall inherit. Their inheritance shall be divided according to lot between the larger and the smaller. This was... Let's see, this was the list of Levites. We'll, we'll get into Levites in a second. What I want to explain there is, is that basically the size of the tribe determined the size of the land you were going to get. Now they casted lots to figure out the location that this big chunk of land was going to be measured out. But the size of the tribe determined the size of the, the chunk of land you were going to get. Now... If we go back and we look at Simeon and we see the mistakes they made in the wilderness, that starts to look a lot more costly now as we see Manasseh, a smaller tribe, passing them up and receiving a greater chunk, a greater, a bigger portion of the inheritance than Simeon, who was primed at that original group of numbers there to get a pretty hefty lot and a pretty hefty chunk of land. And so go back through there and see how that kind of flipped on its head and how the different tribes, and, and now... We'll get in later on how some of these tribes didn't go over the Jordan with the Israelites and all that. But as of right now, you can see how just the mistakes in the wilderness and that disobedience in the wilderness had no effect on the promise, had no effect on the inheritance, so to speak. But it may have affected the individual portion that each of these tribes was going to get. And so there is a consequence for this disobedience. There is a consequence for the mistakes that were made, it just has nothing to do with the promise. The promise will still be fulfilled. Making sense, guys? Yeah, Brian, makes perfect sense. Gotcha. 
These are the clans of Levi, the clans of the Libnites, the clan of the Hebronites. Oh, I don't think we need to read all that. Let's go. Jumping into the Levites, they are numbered differently. Why? Because this is the clan of the temple workers and the priests. Every priest is a Levite. Not every Levite is a priest. And so basically how their land was going to be proportioned out is each major city, each major population center, I shouldn't even say city, each major population center had to set aside an area or a chunk of land for the Levites so the Levites could perform their priestly duties amongst the people. And they had to be basically evenly spread throughout the land to be able to perform these duties. Now we'll see later how that just kind of starts out good in theory, but it kind of fizzles out later. But right now, this is what they're supposed to do. So those listed, every male from a month old and upwards, were 23,000. So also notice here that they didn't do the military age males because the Levites weren't going to fight. These were people that were going to be priests, and so they pushed them. They were able to number them all the way down because if we remember also kind of going back, we see Aaron to Eleazar, Eleazar to Phineas. We can see a line of these babies being born, and we know that this line is going to produce a priest and all that. So at one month old and older, we can number them, and we know that these people more than likely are going to grow up to perform their duties. But let's see, for they were not listed among the people of Israel because there was no inheritance, given, no inheritance given to them among the people of Israel. These were those listed by Moses and Eleazar, the priest. Now he's going back and he's talking about the whole census again. In the plains of Moab by the Jordan of Jericho. But among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron, the priest, who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai, for the Lord had said to them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. And so now we see that this is basically the confirmation. The entire old generation is gone. There is none of them left except for Caleb, Joshua, and Moses. Now we get into like a little kind of side, side issue here with the uh, daughters of Zelophehad. Remember we covered them earlier. Basically, old Z didn't have any sons, so his daughters basically go to Moses, starting in verse 1. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Macher, the son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, Terzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no son. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. So they go to... These daughters go to Mo, Mo, Moses, there we go, goes to Moses, the, the S's were catching up on my tongue there, but these daughters go to Moses and basically say, hey, you preserved a remnant of Korah, why is my father going to get slighted here just because he, he didn't have any sons? He, was, he didn't do anything nearly as bad as Korah, he died of his own sins in the wilderness, but if you preserved a remnant of Korah, can we get some of the same? So Moses took that to God. Moses brought their case before the Lord, starting in verse 5, and 
going into verse 6. And the Lord said to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them a possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, if a man dies and has no son, you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it, and it shall be for the people of Israel a statue and rule as the Lord commanded Moses. So basically, God gets pretty progressive with the uh, people of Israel here and says, hey, give the inheritance to the daughters. And if there's no daughters, find the closest family member and give it to them. And I think we kind of see that playing out in Ruth with Boaz later in the Bible. And, and actually, yeah, you'll see that kind of play out where he was the nearest kinsman who had to take up the inheritance. And we'll actually see this kind of run into a little bit of trouble later. And uh, we won't get too much into it now, but basically the question comes up, okay, these daughters have an inheritance. Some of these males have an inheritance. What happens if they get together and they marry? Do these dudes get to stack up their land? Do they get to basically double up on, on the possession? But uh, we hit that later. We'll deal with that later. Now, moving into verse 12, we see Joshua picked to succeed Moses. The Lord said to Moses, go up into this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. Because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as a whole or failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes, these are the waters of Meribah, of Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. So Lord, so God calls Moses up to a mountain, and he's going to show him the promised land. But he also reminds him why that promised land is now going to be out of his reach. And if you guys remember that story, I want to say it's uh, Numbers 20 going back when basically the people were complaining about water. God told Moses, go out. I believe it was strike the rock and get water. Moses went out and basically <laughs> scolded the people and thumped the rock and water flooded out. And Moses was disobedient in his deliverance. And if you go back in here, I'll actually go back there and look it up real quick. Uh, let's see. When he says in verse 10, this is Numbers 20:10, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. That's right, he hit it twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you should not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. And even that statement there, that therefore you shall not bring the assembly into the land, was kind of this, it has a sense with it that you shall not bring this people that you despise into the land. And that was kind of Moses' major thing here. Because if we remember Going back to Exodus 32, God saw, Moses, or God saw the people worshiping the golden calf, and he told Moses, he's like, hey, 
Let's me and you get out of here. We'll just start over with you. And Moses went back and, and fell down before God and, and begged him not to do that. And then we go back to Miriam when Miriam was, uh, was uh, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of rebellious to Moses and betraying Moses, and she was leprous. Moses couldn't stand to see the state that Miriam was in and went to the tent and, and fell before God and begged for healing and stuff like that. And now we see a point where Moses is no longer patient with the people that God put over him. Moses is no longer shepherding those people. He's turning in that uh, chapter 20, he's despising that people. And that was his major point of punishment there, kind of where God was always gracious. God was always going to fulfill the promise. God was going to provide the water that they asked for, even though this was a rebellious people. Moses took it too far. And it kind of gets us people that are called to teach, people that are called to be up here. And I was talking to a friend about this the other day where we were, uh, he was expressing to me on how he was very much concerned with the weight of teaching. And he's like, I don't want to have people's faith in my hands. I don't want to have the faith of others. I don't want to control I don't want to say control their faith because I think the word he uses, but you guys get what I'm saying. I don't want to influence his pe- I don't want to have a major influence on people's faith. We don't have that. If Moses didn't have the ability to turn against the people of God, what makes you think I'm going to be able to come up here and, you know, I mean, convince you guys to do anything you don't want to do, you know? And so that's the point is that as a teacher, someone up here from the pulpit, we don't strike out with a personal agenda. We don't settle disputes up here. And that's kind of what Moses' thing was doing is he was up there, he was striking the rock, and he was settling like a personal matter, a personal dispute. What we do is we use our gifting from the Holy Spirit, and hopefully it's in agreement with your Holy Spirit, and together we both leave here seeking Jesus and wanting to press farther into the love of Christ. Make sense? And so he's reminding Moses where he fell, and you got to think, poor Moses, you know, I mean, he knows he's not going. And God's like, hey, come up on this mountain. You want to see the promised land? You're not getting there because you messed up. But no, it's a, it's a beautiful moment because Moses kind of comes to the realization of the fact that these people need a leader. So he goes into verse 16. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them who shall lead them out, bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord of Moses, or so the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom, this, whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. Verse 20, you shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey, and he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him and the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua, made him stand before Eleazar the priest, and the whole congregation, and he laid hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. So now we see basically Moses taking Joshua 
pulling him up into that position of leadership, doing it in front of the congregation, doing it in front of the assembly with Aaron's replacement, Eleazar, very official stuff here. He's basically telling the people of Israel, this is your leader now. Now remember, Moses ain't going anywhere. We still got the entire book of Deuteronomy to get through before we start seeing that. But here is that first sign that Moses understands a new leadership is coming. And if we remember kind of the story of Joshua, going back in a quick summary, he led the first major battle coming out of Egypt against the, uh, the, Amal- the Amalekites or whatever. You guys get it. The A guys that were on the border of Egypt. But anyways, he led that first battle, proved himself to be a worthy general, proved himself to be a worthy disciple of Moses, followed him up on the mountain of Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, came back, helped at the tent of meeting, was with Moses, attended to Moses there. So this is someone that more than likely the people were looking at and realizing, okay, this is a person that is next in line. Moses was his mentor. He had proven himself worthy of this role in this position. And so now is the official kind of ceremony where they put, they put Joshua out front, lay hands on him, pray for him, and, uh, and make it official. And so starting in just a couple things to hit here, starting in verse 21, you see the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. The Urim is like a sacred set of lots, I guess is the best way to put it. I don't want to say like sacred dice, but it's basically the priest dice. And this is how some decisions were made, and actually a lot of decisions. As we saw earlier, the land that was going to be distributed was going to be done by lots. And so the same way, if there was like a major decision to be had, they were seen as an impartial way of deciding something with the Lord's hand involved in deciding what it was. Now, as the prophets start coming into prominence and the judges start coming into prominence towards and through the book of Joshua, these lots become less and less relevant. But just know that's what he's talking about here, is these uh, basically priestly lots where if they got confused, they would cast these lots. Um, The other thing I like to point out is because last week we talked about Phineas and we talked about a type of Christ or Christ type. And that language seemed to be a little bit confusing to people. So what I meant by type of Christ or Christ type is an Old Testament example of some of the things that Christ fulfilled in the New Testament. Okay, so that, that's basically what I mean when I say a type of Christ or a Christ type. So a good example that the Bible uses, Mel- Melchizedek. We see in Hebrews that he was a Christ type. Now there is a discussion to be had on whether or not that was actually Jesus. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that for our purposes right now, he's a type of Christ. Um, we look at Noah in the belly of the whale. Christ used that own example as himself, so that was a type of Christ or an example of Christ. And so here, we also, we also have, what did I say? Did I say Noah? Yeah. I meant Jonah. Come on, guys. You're going to sharpshoot me up here? Let's see you do better. No. No, but Jonah. Jonah was a type of Christ. Spent three days in the belly of the fish, and so uh, I caught it. So I don't want to see anyone coming up here afterwards calling me out, okay? At least for that mistake. I'm sure there's plenty more. So I want to show you guys this. I like this a lot. The top word there, this is Hebrew if you don't recognize it. 
And the top word there is the word, let me see if remember Florida. I read Hebrew, can't speak it that well. But we got Yahashua is that top word there. Now, if someone was from Israel, they'd probably be able to pronounce that a lot better. But you see an extended version. That's basically the Hebrew for the word Joshua, for the name Joshua. Now, remember, Hebrew, we read, uh, we read right to left. We don't read left to right. So that first little apostrophe up there, that's the Hebrew Y. The next one is the Hebrew H. There's the, it's called a vav there. That can serve all kinds of functions. It's a Hebrew valve in this case, or valve, a Hebrew vowel in this case, but it can also serve as a conjunction in other forms like that. That W-looking thing, that's a Hebrew S. Now, with that little dot all the way over on the far right, that makes it an SH sound. So that's where you get the shua, because the next vav there is a two O's together like the word soup. And then that Y-looking thing, supposed to be silent, but every time I've seen it and I've been told to pronounce it, you, you throw like a half a A, like a, uh, I don't know. Uh. But Yehoshua is, is basically what that says. That name right below it is the same exact name, but for some reason, sometime after the exile, people stopped or got sick of saying Yehoshua, and they just shortened it down to Yeshua. That is the name Joshua. That is the name of Jesus that when he went to the temple and he was circumcised, when they put his name in the genealogy list that they held there, that's the name that was recorded most likely. I didn't see it myself, but that's the name Joshua from the Hebrew at that time in that period. The two same exact names. And so when I saw that, and I was looking at that, I was like, let's look at and see what other similarities that exist between Jesus and Joshua real quick to kind of see if maybe Joshua fulfills that role of a Christ type or a type of Christ. And so to start with, the easiest one is Joshua crossed the Jordan to go into the promised land. Jesus, or went from the will, Joshua went from the wilderness to the, through the Jordan to Jericho in the promised land, Jesus came up out of the Jordan at baptism into the wilderness from the promised land. So we got kind of like a little reversal there, a little reversal of roles. Um, another thing we see, Jesus is known as the good shepherd. When Moses is asking for who shall we, we need to put a person up, he specifically says, who shall go out before them and come in before them who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may be not or may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. So again, Joshua fulfills that similar role as a shepherd. Even if we go up, and this is verse 17 of chapter 27, just so you know that I'm hitting on here. Who shall go out before them and come in before them? Who shall lead them out and bring them in? Remember the promise that was given to Mary. You shall call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Jesus came in the flesh to lead us into that promised land, into that inheritance. Our inheritance isn't a land on the other side of the, the Jordan in that Jericho, but that inheritance isn't as corruptible as a physical presence. Am I making sense here? That inheritance we have is forever, and if you, we need to kind of send that home, Remember, in Romans, we're told that we are joint heir, co-heirs with Christ, and he led us into that inheritance of God of eternal life 
of salvation as Christians. And so we can see that Joshua, they share name, they have similar regions and areas. If we even look at the wilderness, when Jesus is answering Satan on the temptation, all of his answers come out of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 8. And so again, we see the, the location, and Jesus came out of Egypt as a young child. Joshua came out of Egypt as a young child. Jesus went into the wilderness. Joshua went into the wilderness and then led the people into the promised land like Jesus has led us into salvation and led us home. And so the point being, and as Dougie comes up here to close us in prayer, Dougie Fresh is his full name, in case you needed to know. But as he comes up here, the point being is that we have that hope of eternal salvation. We have that inheritance as being a co-heir with Jesus Christ. And as much as we seem to get in the way of that promise, get in the way of that inheritance, and even booby trap and put a stumbling block in our own path. It is good to see a physical representation from the book of Numbers that that promise, that inheritance, that word of God will be fulfilled doesn't matter if we got to change names, doesn't matter if, if we got to move numbers around, doesn't matter if we got to delay it a little bit. And I'm not saying God delays, I'm not saying God changes, but I'm saying in our lives as we see it, as we view our Christian walk, we can trust and we can hold firm in that promise being fulfilled that we are children of God, we are co-heirs of Christ, we are growing in the Holy Spirit, and one day we will be together in salvation rejoicing. Unless you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, come talk to me. I would love to introduce you to that promise. I would love to have you know the assurance and the confidence that comes with knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let's close in prayer. Dear Jesus, we just thank you so much for this opportunity to come before you, to hear your word, to hear your gospel, to know the sacrifice that your son had done for us when he died on the cross and allowed us to have free access to you, Lord. We just pray that you continue to show us this promise being fulfilled in our life, continue to show us the work of the Holy Spirit in leading us towards that promised land and continue to show us how we all fit in together in your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.